Hi, everyone, and welcome to the WIM podcast. Women in Influencer Marketing is a first-of-its-kind exclusive networking group made up of inspirational women. This podcast is where we explore influencer marketing and get real about women in business. Find us wherever you download podcasts, and of course, you can always find us at IamWim.com. That's IamWim.com. Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome back. We're back, you guys, for another week of the WIM podcast. For anyone who is new, big, giant, warm welcome. I'm excited for you to like check out our community, and this podcast is just a sliver of a component of our community. It's actually so much further beyond myself. I want to give our members credit for one second. And you guys are listening. You guys are like really diving in so heavily to our virtual resources and like chiming in every day to our private Facebook group and our Slack community and coming to our IRL experiences. I just want to give you credit because credit is freaking do. This community would literally be nothing if it wasn't for you guys. No one's showing up to like hear me. People want to hear from our guests. People want to hear from our members. And you guys are just constantly leaning heavily into the community. And it would be nothing without you guys. So huge shout out <laughs> to you guys. I also hope that you guys are tuning in on YouTube. Follow us. We're at WIM on there. It's the only platform that we got WIM, guys. The only one. So we got to like, we got to appreciate it. So subscribe to our channel on YouTube. You can also see the visual, which is just fun to like see our guests in the flesh on Spotify as well. Because Spotify is so cool now for the past like it's been at least a year that when we upload, you can watch your favorite podcasts and not presuming that it's us, but you can watch all your favorite podcasts, visual one, like watch them. I love watching podcasts. I just like sit on the couch and pull it up on my TV. I'm not really doing it through Spotify. Honestly, I'm doing it through YouTube. But anyways, I encourage you guys to like check it out. And if you're podcast listeners, you might become podcast watchers. I promise. It's really fun. All right. So before we get into our awesome, awesome guest today, Robert Freund, who I'm going to introduce in just a sec, I also want to remind you guys that on March 15th, coming up so soon, we have our next Influencer Marketing Job Fair, where you can get hired or hire from our community. It's at 6 p.m. We've done it before. You probably have gone. It's absolutely incredible, and it's going to be the highlight of that week for sure. So the next event, and then I will tell you where to sign up, but the next event I also want to make sure is on your radar is March 28th, which is the Best in Influencer Tech event. We have hosted this. I think this is our sixth time hosting it. Don't quote me on that number. It's like sixth or seventh. Anyways, it's the marriage of two things that I personally love, influencer marketing and technology. So we have incredible sponsors for that event that are coming in. It's completely free to you. It's why we're super grateful to our sponsors for allowing it to be completely free, where you get demos of their latest and greatest product offerings. So I'm just a huge component for you are working hella hard at your job and tools are incredibly important to amplify all of that hard work that you're doing. So the best influencer tech event, that's why we do it at least two times every single year. We have for the last three. It's a great event. Again, it's completely free and you just get to sit back and like compare, contrast and see the latest and greatest in influencer tech. I cannot recommend it enough. It is 
probably my favorite event that we do. It's why we do it so often. So you can find out information on those events and also others that we have coming up. We're doing more in-person events. So keep an eye out for those. Go to iamwim.com slash events. And of course, we will drop that in the show notes. All right, you guys. So I am now going to introduce you our special guest of the hour, Robert Freund. He is he has his own law firm called Robert Freund Law and a little bit about him. So he is an experienced advertising attorney and advisor. He focuses his practice on social media marketing and e-commerce issues specifically. You might have seen him on his social channels because I know I follow him and sometimes we repost his stuff. It's so good and insightful. So before opening his own law firm, he honed his legal skills working for another incredible law firm, one of the largest and most respective international law firms. In fact, he's lectured about advertising law at the University of Southern California and the University of San Diego. And he's also been quoted in incredible publications you've definitely heard of, like the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and Vox on all of those issues. He was named Southern California. California Super Lawyers Rising Star in Media and Advertising for the last bunch of years from 2020 to 2023. Let's hope that he gets it for 2024. I'm super excited for you to meet Robert. So Robert, thank you so much for joining today and your dog as well. Hi, Kimmy. Say hello. I, I, I hope sure that everybody's I hope everybody's watching the YouTube or Spotify on camera version. If not, you're missing out. Robert has a really adorable dog, work from home life. Oh, that's the perfect shot right there. <laughs> <laughs> so good. I'm so excited to chat with you today for a variety of different reasons. So I'm appreciative that you came on, but first and foremost, how's your day going? It's good. Off to a busy start this morning and got a fair amount of work to do and some fun stuff like this as well. So all good on, on this end. It's interesting that you say that. I feel like there are so many lawyers who would look at how you have sort of cultivated your own career and be like, that looks much more fun than what I experience on a daily basis. And we're going to get into a little bit of that as we chat today. I think a really interesting place to start so our audience can learn a little bit more about you is the following. Like you could have focused on so many different areas of the law. You go to law school, you come out and the world is your oyster. Why did you end up focusing on advertising and influencer marketing in particular? It wasn't by design initially. It wasn't like I graduated law school or even in law school had an idea that I want to focus on issues related to advertising and marketing. What happened was when I graduated, I started working here in Los Angeles at a large international firm, a big law firm, so to speak. I was in the commercial litigation department. So they cover lawsuits regarding all kinds of business matters, some intellectual property litigation. And a lot of the cases that I was working on 
was defending against consumer class actions. So representing big companies that have been sued on a class-wide basis for any number of things. In California, there are a lot of, well, definitely more than in other jurisdictions, a lot of consumer class actions based around false advertising claims. So whether that's deceptive pricing or some kind of misleading claim in an ad or something like that, California is a place where there's a ton of activity around those sorts of claims. And I found that working on those cases versus financial disputes or real estate litigation or something like that, the subject matter is just more interesting to me inherently, like reading about the psychological side of advertising and how we're applying these laws that in many cases were written a very long time ago and trying to catch up to how innovative marketers are changing their tactics and seeing how the legislature responds and then how the court interprets what we have and applying it to advertising cases. It was just more inherently interesting to me than anything else I was doing. And it's the kind of stuff that I'll read about on a weekend just because I'm interested in it. And so I was at that firm for close to seven years. And towards the end of my time there, we had more and more clients who would come to us to serve as sort of like an outside general counsel type role with respect to their ad. So before any lawsuit or dispute is even on the horizon, they'd say, for example, we're about to run this ad campaign promoting our new video game. Can you take a look at what we're about to do and let us know where it falls on the risk spectrum, stuff to avoid, have our competitors gotten in trouble for this sort of thing? And I like that a lot more than doing the actual litigation. There's more control over your time. Clients are usually less upset when they're not trying to get out of a lawsuit. And so we can discuss this a little bit later. But when I decided to leave that firm and and start my own practice, I thought what I want to do is focus on that litigation avoidance type work to try to help people keep the money they've made by selling things online and avoid litigation in the first place. And because the advertising subject matter was the most interesting to me, I thought my goal is let me build a practice where I can do that type of work full time. And here we are. I mean, that's incredible. It's, I think it's really interesting to hear about your professional journey, but also see it play out because I follow you on social media. That's how I found you in the first place because a lot of people in the WIM community definitely follow you and like share your stuff and talk about the interesting posts that you're posting. So I love that you're, you know, combining all of those things to be able to like get these interesting topics out to the masses using social media, making it fun, making it, you know, educational. And also, of course, it just supports your business. And as a business person, I think it's like phenomenal to be able to be you know, leading the charge of your own marketing efforts. So I love exploring everybody's unique path. And I love sort of a role that feels different from the rest. So is there anything in your career, your career journey that you think is like a little unexpected or unique or something that we might not know about that you think is worth mentioning? Because there might be people watching this and be like, how do I get in Robert's shoes? Or like, how do I explore that for myself? Is there anything you think we should know? Yeah, I think that, especially the feedback that I get from lawyers, there are a lot of lawyers who are in my position. 
getting more senior to a large firm, questioning whether that's what they want to stay doing. And they're not sure if they really can just leave and start their own thing. It's a pretty daunting thing to try to think about. You're taking on a significant amount of risk in terms of what you're getting paid at, at a large firm versus trying to do your own thing. And it turns out there are a ton of resources available online and there's communities that will basically give you step-by-step -step instructions on what you need to get in order and how to start a firm with not as much money upfront as you might think. And it certainly takes planning and preparation and, and a little bit of risk tolerance, but you can be operational in not a lot of time and without very much upfront expense. Like, you don't necessarily need to have a physical office in a high rise. I do have an office that I use, not today, because I'm helping take care of my dog today, but I didn't at first, and I didn't need very much more than, you know, email a couple pieces of software that help me run the practice and an address where I can get mail. And then from there, you can scale up as necessary and however much you want. So. And I think that applies to anyone who's interested. Maybe you work at a larger ad agency and you want to start your own thing. It's simpler now probably than it's ever been to start your own business and get it off the ground without a ton of overhead that you might think would hamstring you. I love that you're saying that so much for a bunch of different reasons. I hear so many people, I mean, even people today were pinging me being like, oh my God, I got laid off. Oh my gosh, like, what do I do? Where am I at? And isn't it interesting that the entrepreneurial route used to feel the most risky and now, mm -hmm. you know, your livelihood could be, you know, just taken from you in the drop of a hat because people are just like laying off folks from their company and the economy is wild. And it almost feels as if being an entrepreneur, you're a little bit more in control of your own destiny. So I love that you're bringing this up. And I think there's a high likelihood that it could feel reassuring to hear from a lawyer like yourself that starting your own thing is less cumbersome than one might think. So are there, from a legal perspective and, you know, from doing it yourself, is there anything in particular that people should keep in mind? People should make sure that they check these boxes. Does it depend, I assume, a little bit on where they live? Is there any advice that you can give for just people wanting to start their own businesses? Yeah, I think having having a plan in place, of course, that sounds like such a simple thing to say, but it's really important in terms of what kind of services you're going to be offering through your business, how you're going to set it up and where your operating comes into play a bit. But the very basics, once you have your roadmap and your plan set up in terms of timing and, and so forth, is as soon as possible, make your business a separate legal entity from yourself. So whether that's typically through like a single member LLC or a corporation, depending on what your accountant tells you makes the most sense from a tax perspective. But it's really important to have that legal separation between you as a sole proprietor and this separate legal entity that's your business if you're doing any significant amount of business. And, and I would suggest doing that pretty much in all cases as early as possible because you get such a benefit in terms of exposure of your personal assets in case something goes wrong. 
if you're in business long enough, you're going to be sued or someone is going to threaten to sue you. It's just a fact, whether you've done anything wrong or not, eventually someone's going to cause some kind of trouble from a legal perspective. And so the sooner you have it in place, the better off you are in terms of shielding your personal assets from being involved in that kind of situation at all. So that's sort of like the foundational first step is set up that LLC or that corporation. It's not especially complicated to do in most cases. It's not that expensive and it will give you a lot of peace of mind. And then it gives you a, a foundation to build from a lot easier, whether that's taking on contractors or eventually hiring employees or engaging the services of vendors or what have you, running all that through the business entity rather than you individually is a really important step to take. Question. Let's say from the beginning, you know, you want to start a business, but you're like, I don't know, is this ultimately going to be just me as like a solopreneur or am I going to grow this into like an enterprise sized corporation? Are there different approaches for how you start or do you start in the same way? A lot of the conversation of choosing what entity to set up, whether it's an LLC or a corporation or maybe a partnership or something is a tax-driven question that your CPA can help you answer. Unless you really expect like you're a startup that's gonna raise capital through investors and take on shareholders in the not long term, an LLC usually makes sense, especially for somebody starting out as an individual. And I'm saying at least in California where I'm licensed, but generally the most common thing people set up first is an LLC. If you know that you're going to be taking a lot of investor money and giving out equity, a corporation can make that easier in some respects, but it really is a conversation for a tax professional to make sure that you're set up appropriately to make all of that smoothly. But, you know, spending a lot of time obsessing over which particular structure makes the most sense is sort of less the issue. And it's more about okay, my CPA says LLC makes sense for this amount of revenue that's expected and how I'm going to be running my business. So we'll go with that. And then, you know, in either structure, you can add employees, you can scale up and down the road, maybe that whatever form you selected initially no longer makes sense for your business. And there's ways to switch into another form or another structure that's, that can be handled. So it's not like if you get it wrong, so to speak, that you're sort of locked into something that you should have had done differently. You're not doomed forever if you no. <laughs> start in one place and then you learn later that you have different needs and you want to, you know, switch to a different format. So I appreciate that very much. I appreciate the recommendation to like seek out a CPA for that sort of like tax and structural advice. So I think that's great. Mm -hmm. Let's dig a little bit more into your area of expertise, which I know a lot of our members, new or old, like experienced or new in the industry, are always wanting to make sure that they're crossing their T's, dotting their I's when it comes to FTC rules. You talk about so many different topics on your social media. I almost feel like FTC stuff is like, you know, there's way more interesting stories, but I, I would be remiss if we didn't touch on that a little bit. What's something about FTC rules that you don't think enough people talk about? I think that there's so much to cover in terms of what's under the FTC's umbrella and their rules apply to any advertising in the U.S. or even directed to the U.S. So 
is an important area of discussion. I think one thing that people don't necessarily understand is that the FTCs, the laws and the rules that they enforce apply to anyone involved in whatever advertising we're talking about. So let's say you, you have a situation where a brand is selling, let's just say like a dietary supplement and they've hired an ad agency to find influencers to promote their products. If there's a non-compliant piece of advertising, like let's say the influencer doesn't include the disclosure that they have a relationship with that brand where they're getting paid. That's something that the FTC requires. So who's responsible in that case? You might think, well, it's the influencer's fault. So liabilities on them, or maybe the brand should have made it more clear what the influencer is required to do. But the reality is that the brand, the ad agency and the influencer are all potentially liable and are responsible for complying with the FTC's rules. So if there's a non-compliant ad, potentially everyone is on the hook, regardless of what your contracts say. We can talk about what what's beneficial to have in agreements and how you can sort of shift some of the financial responsibility. But the FTC sees the non-compliant ad, they're going to look at everybody involved in creating that ad across the entire chain. Common is it for people to really be held accountable these days? I feel like it's definitely changed over time, like maybe 10 years ago, like you know, when there was a big case or whatever, it was like very rare to hear about that. And I felt almost as if it was more common to see people post ads all the time without any disclosures. And you're like, these people like seem to be fine. Nobody's coming down on them. Like, is it really necessary to disclose? And of course, everybody will say yes, but are there really consequences that people are seeing? And like, are there any specific stories that you think are really important for our audience to know about? Yeah, absolutely. The FTC is becoming more and more aggressive about policing disclosure rules and some other issues that are sort of top of mind for them, like manipulating customer reviews, claims about if a product's made in the USA or it's not, and some other topics that they've identified as being priorities for them. But included in those priorities is these disclosure rules around influencer marketing and the other rules that they have about making endorsements more generally. There was a regime change at the FTC not that long ago, and the new chair has made it very clear that she wants the FTC to have more tools at their disposal, be more aggressive, bring more cases. And part of that is because there is this perception out there that, well, they only strike, you know, the fashion novas of the world and it's only here and there. And it gives that sense to some marketers that, well, th my number is not going to be drawn, so there's not very much risk. And also, I hear a lot from clients will say, well, this competitor of ours is doing it. How come they're not being sued? And the answer is, well, they've just been lucky so far, and it's going to get riskier and riskier as time goes on. And that's just the FTC. There's also the state attorneys general who enforce very similar state laws, sometimes in conjunction with the FTC, sometimes on their own. And those cases don't make the headlines as often. You're aware of a very small fraction of what's actually going on, even in terms of lawsuits that are filed. And then there's also the element of, it's not just regulators like the FTC and the state AGs that can file lawsuits about some of these rules. Consumers can do it too. If I see a, a misleading ad, 
if I buy something because I believed that this influencer endorsed it, or I believe that this person just bought it because they liked it, and I didn't know they had this connection, or an influencer makes some claim about the product that isn't true or can't be substantiated or something like that, there's an opportunity to start a class action about that. And we're seeing that more and more as well. And many cases or many disputes are resolved before a lawsuit's ever filed and they're resolved confidentially. So we don't even know how many potential lawsuits have resulted in settlements before they even make it to court. So it's true that, you know, in some ways, like you're rolling the dice, maybe you'll get away with everything forever, but that is becoming less and less likely as time goes on, especially because the FTC has been open and clear about how much more aggressive they intend to be. And that's been playing out as well. There, there have been more cases brought by the FTC around the issues that I talk about. So interesting. All right. So if you could give us like an FTC lesson, little brief lesson on like how to disclose, is it hashtag enough? Does it have to be the branded partnership label? Can it be one or the other? Does it have to be above the folds? Like what are the rules that everybody should be aware of for compliance? Yeah, I'll start by saying the FTC has their own documents that go into, they have one document called the endorsement guides that goes into great detail with a lot of examples that I couldn't possibly cover. They also have a document called Disclosures 101 for Influencers. It's like two pages long and it tries to summarize what I'm going to talk about. So if we just want to focus on disclosures, the rule is this, anytime that there's what the FTC calls a material connection between an advertiser, like a brand, and an endorser, like an influencer, that material connection needs to be disclosed to the audience if it's not otherwise obvious. Like you see an ad on TV, you know it's a commercial, you know that whoever is in it is promoting the brand. So there's not, we don't need like hashtag ad on TV commercials. The reason influencer, or part of the reason influencer marketing is effective is because it doesn't immediately feel like advertising. And the FTC's policy, or part of why they have these rules, is people should know when they're being advertised to. So that material connection is any relationship that would affect the weight or the credibility that a consumer would give to the endorsement. So if I see a video of somebody talking about a pair of shoes that they love, it might matter to me when I'm making a purchase choice to know that they got those shoes for free or that they're being paid to promote them. That's the idea. So that material connection, certainly if you're paying an influencer to promote something, that requires disclosure. But it's not just payment. If you're giving someone product for free, even if you don't specifically ask them to make a post, the FTC's position is if they post promoting that product or talking about it, they need to disclose to their audience that they were given it for free. Other relationships are if you get a discount code or if you're given some kind of benefit that's not available to everybody. Or if you're an employee of a brand and you go on Twitter and talk about how great the new product is, if it's not obvious that you work for the company, you need to disclose that. Family relationships. If your spouse has some new product that they're launching through their brand and you talk about how great it is and it's not obvious that you're their spouse, that is another material connection that you have to disclose. So that's sort of, in a nutshell, the situations that require a disclosure. And then the next piece is like, well, how do I go about doing that? Do I have to use hashtag ad? Do I have to use a certain hashtag? 
you don't necessarily have to use a hashtag at all. Hashtag ad is one of the ways of making a disclosure that the FTC says is generally appropriate for any type of material connection. And so is um, hashtag sponsored or hashtag brand name partner. They specifically don't like things like abbreviations like spawn or just S-P-O-N or just hashtag gifted or something like that, because to them that doesn't clearly convey that this is a commercial relationship, that it's sponsored content. So the way to understand whether your disclosure is compliant is the rule is that it has to be made in a way that's clear and conspicuous, which basically means in a way that the audience can't miss. So in terms of above the fold, below the fold, it's important to think about this in terms of where the content resides and like what the platform allows you to do and also the format of the content. So if we're talking about an Instagram static post caption and you're gonna use hashtag ad or just the word ad if you don't wanna include the hashtag, the FTC has been very specific that that needs to be above the fold, so to speak, meaning person shouldn't have to click or tap more to see that disclosure. And that specific issue came up in a case a few years ago against a brand called Teamy that was running a very large influencer campaign and had celebrities like Cardi B and a few others. Those posts included hashtag Teamy partner, which would be acceptable, except that the hashtag disclosure was underneath that more which made it not clear and conspicuous. And that case settled for over $15 million. So we are talking about like that specific level of what regulators are looking at in terms of how disclosures made. So as you guys know, the social media landscape is constantly changing. And with over 50 million creators out there, relying on traditional agencies or manually discovering and managing talent can be both ineffective and time-consuming, drastically reducing the overall impact of your campaigns. To unlock the full potential of your influencer marketing campaigns, you need a smarter and a more effective way to discover all types of creators to accelerate the customer journey. You guys need to know about Maverick. It's the industry's trusted influencer marketing management platform, transforming the way enterprise consumer brands search and partner with the right creators, manage and scale their programs, and measure campaign effectiveness and ROI. I want you guys to check them out. Tell them that I sent you. Just head to maverick.co. That's M-A-V-R-C-K.co. They're an awesome company to partner with. And out of curiosity, so who was on the receiving end of that judgment? Was it the brand? It was the brand in that case. They didn't go after the individual influencers in that case, but the FTC has sent hundreds of warning letters to influencers about this issue and a lot of people like me who watch the space it appears that the ftc is more interested in holding individual influencers accountable and we know that because they put out documents like the disclosure guide to influencers that says in bold text disclosure is everyone's responsibility don't just rely on the brand and so forth and generally when the ftc comes out with new guidance or new documents enforcement actions and lawsuits about that subject matter follow pretty shortly thereafter. So in that case, it and was the so brand. If they were going after an influencer, what's mm -hmm. reasonable to expect in terms of like 
how much money somebody could be out. And I feel like there's like legal fees to consider and like a judgment to consider, like what's at risk here? It's hard to tell exactly how the FTC comes up with the amounts that they settle for and why and in what context. They haven't historically been very consistent about that. You'll see two brands of similar size do the same thing wrong. And then uh, we've agreed to settle for wildly different amounts. But in the context of what we're talking about, the FTC is has the authority to impose civil penalties for violating Section 5 of the FTC Act, which is what we're talking about. If the person they're suing has violated a previous order, like the FTC has gone after someone and you've agreed that, okay, according to this order, we're not going to do what you've accused us of doing again, or without getting too into the weeds about it, there are other situations where if you have noticed that a certain advertising practice is unlawful, according to the FTC, and then you do it, these civil penalties apply. The maximum civil penalty for a violation of Section 5 is a little bit over $50,000 per violation. And if the violation is ongoing, that can be that $50,000 amount per day that the violation continues. So in theory, if you are an influencer and you put up 20 pieces of content that don't have the appropriate disclosure, you're looking at 20 times 50,000, potentially times every day that the content remains live, which gets pretty out of control pretty quickly. And you're going to have to hire a lawyer to deal with it and get you through the process of dealing with the FTC in the first place. So we haven't seen a case like that yet where the FTC has thrown the book at an individual influencer for violating these laws, but it's not out of the realm of possibility. I should also mention like that's not the only legal risk. You're also probably, if you're working with a brand that has that's sophisticated, you're probably going to breach your contract if you don't comply with the FTC's rules. Like most brands that know what they're doing will include in their contract, like you agree that you've read and understand these rules, that you'll use this hashtag, you'll put it in this part of the content. And if you don't, then you breach the contract and there's repercussions for that. Not to mention the PR aspect of it, like we saw with Michaela and the whole Lashgate thing, like even if you could argue that she made the right disclosures, or even if she didn't use the fake eyelashes in that specific context, consumers are much more quick to cast criticisms at influencers today for not being transparent or not disclosing. And so, you know, legal issues aside, it seems like the environment is much more primed for audiences to lash out at influencers that they suspect or believe aren't being completely truthful. To lash out. <laughs> Pun intended. I love Sorry, it. I didn't Pun even mean to do that. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So I'd like to focus also on some of the smaller companies that don't necessarily have all of their ducks in a row yet. You know, some of the larger agencies or brands have been doing this for a while. They know what T's to cross and I's to dot. But I think that for some of the smaller companies up and coming or, you know, just diving into influencer marketing, what should those influencer marketers keep in mind to cover themselves from a legal perspective? Yeah, I think that this is a good place to pivot away from just the FTC discussion. I think, like I mentioned, it's important to have 
something in your agreement where the influencer acknowledges and agrees that they're going to comply with all advertising laws, including the FCC's endorsement guide. So at least you have that in case some regulator wants to investigate you. You can say, well, look, we have this in our contracts. We have some kind of monitoring and compliance program in place where we'll look at content that's out there and ask influencers to correct it if it's not compliant. That's pretty critical to have in, in the agreement. But what I see more commonly or more frequently with small and mid-sized agencies and big ones has less to do with whether their influencers are complying with the FTC rules and more about have we defined who owns the content the influencer is creating, who can use that content and where, like on what platforms and what media, for how long, can we use their name, image, and likeness, and in what way. Those ownership and usage rights in terms of the content that's being created is, I would say, the most critical part of your agreements to get right. For example, maybe you've contracted with an influencer and they agree to post an Instagram story or a video on their Instagram page. And that's all the contract says. The brand then takes that video or that post and reposts it on their page. If the brand's agreement doesn't say they get to do that, then they have a copyright violation on their hands, potentially a violation of the influencer's publicity rights. And those kinds of disputes are very tricky to try to get out of. And usually you end up having to pay as the brand significantly more than you would have paid to have your agreements drafted correctly in the first place. So that kind of dispute comes up much, much more frequently than the FTC stuff does. That is really, really good advice. And I hope that everybody listening writes that one down. I'd also love to chat with you from the influencer or creator's perspective. What should influencers keep in mind to cover themselves from a legal perspective? Because you're talking about a $50,000 fine per day. And like, that makes me so anxious. <laughs> even just thinking about it. So basically like what should influencers or creators, all these people who are, you know, doing incredible work and maybe don't know, what should they know? What should they keep in mind? Two of the best things you can do are just become aware of what the FTC's rules are. We talked about disclosures. It's worth understanding that the claims that you're making about a product or a service that you're endorsing, the law treats that as advertising, whether you have a million followers or you have one follower. A question I get a lot is like, if I'm not an influencer, but I'm just a content creator or something, do these laws still apply? And the answer is it applies to anybody regardless of size. There's no like legal difference between a content creator or an influencer or an ambassador or something. And there's no like audience size threshold where these rules kick in. If you're promoting or endorsing a product or a service and you're getting paid or you have free product, it's advertising and it's treated as the brand's advertising too. So one of the core truth in advertising principles that goes into the FTC part is that every claim made in an ad has to be truthful, not misleading and substantiated. And in the context of influencer endorsements, whatever you say about a product has to reflect your actual experience with that product and your honest belief. So if you get sent a product, and you haven't tried it and you go and make a piece of content that says, you know, this is the best thing I've ever used. 
you're violating the law because it's not true and it doesn't reflect your actual belief about the product. And the reason an influencer should care about that is because you're potentially getting the brand in trouble if someone wants to make an issue out of that, whether it's a regulator or a consumer who felt misled or a brand's competitor. Competitors can sue under a different law for false advertising. And that has come up in the context of one brand saying, hey, our competition's having these influencers say X, Y, and Z, and we know that's not true, and we know that they didn't use the product in the way they're saying, things like that. So make sure what you're saying actually does reflect what you believe about the product. Just having an understanding of the disclosure rules will allow you to get a baseline sense of, is there a disclosure here? Did they ask me not to make a disclosure? If any brand ever asks you not to make a disclosure, you should not work with them. That's one of those like very rarely give hard nose to things and try to make relationships work. But for me, that's the kind of red flag that's like, I'm not gonna work with somebody who's asking me to break the law. Beyond having sort of like a baseline understanding of what I just talked about, really understand your contracts. I've seen so many situations where a creator has inadvertently given away the right to use their own name or image forever in a certain context, or they didn't realize that this video they're shooting is going to then turn into a YouTube ad with like a million dollar ad spent behind it. Or they didn't expect that because I promoted this fashion company, now my face is on the billboard for some medication that I have no relationship to. Those kinds of things happen and it's because they haven't taken the time to ensure that they really understand everything that the agreement says. So really having someone, either yourself or someone on your team, look over an agreement to make sure you're not giving up anything more than you wanted to, and make sure that you're getting everything that you do want to get is probably the most important thing that I would recommend. Yeah. Like don't be hesitant to redline an agreement or raise your hand if the contract doesn't align to what you agree to in email. So related to this, I also ask you for some practical advice for our listeners. We hear stories on this podcast or we see them in our Facebook group, or our Slack communities where influencers have been scammed or just taken advantage of. And after reading these stories, I can imagine they or their managers can feel nervous or disempowered of like what to do if they experience something like that. Like they are the smaller entity in comparison to the larger agency or brand on the other side. So what practical advice can you give to the smaller business owner or the solopreneur in our industry who wants to protect themselves when someone violates a contract? What can they do? Yeah, I hear you. It's even thinking about legal processes, very intimidating, especially if you've never gone through it before. And a lot of times, like the cost of doing something about whatever the issue is will outweigh whatever you get out of it at the end. But not always. And it, it depends on what the issue is and where you're located. So, for example, in California, somebody violates my publicity rights. I have the opportunity to recover my attorney's fees if I prevail which makes it much more appetizing for a lawyer to potentially represent me in that case because the longer it goes on, and these cases are generally not that complicated. Like you either use my image in it for a commercial purpose without my permission or you didn't. There's some very nuanced ones, but the majority of the disputes aren't that complicated. And if I'm the lawyer that knows I'm not just gonna get 
an hourly fee out of this, I'm going to potentially get, you know, the attorney's fees award and I might want to take this on contingency. You're much more likely to get a lawyer interested in taking that case. And the cost to you will be, if it's taken on contingency, it would be nothing. That's not true in every state or with respect to every dispute. But I mentioned that because if you do have some kind of issue going on where the thought has crossed your mind, like, is there something I can do legally about this? Talk with a lawyer in your state about it just to see what your options are. And a lot of lawyers are happy to have that discussion with you just to see what might be available because it might be a win for them. And at a minimum, they're helping educate somebody about what's going on. So don't just immediately think that or assume that, well, this issue is too small. It's going to cost me more than I get out of it. So I should just not explore it. Always explore it just so you know what your options are. And then the other piece is less of like, here's what you should do legally and more just do as much diligence as you can on whoever you're about to engage in business with upfront. There are tools available online that will give you a little bit of insight into who the person on the other end of the deal is. If you're a creator and you're about to work with a brand or some agency, figure out what state they're located in and see if you can find their business name in the Secretary of State database. If you can't, that's a red flag. See if you can find out if anyone else has worked with those people. If you are working with somebody who's proposing to be your talent agent, many states, California, New York, and a handful of others, require licensing for talent agencies. And if they're not licensed, then you don't owe them any money. They can't take agency fees from you. So there's registries for licensed agencies as well. If they say they're based in California and they're a talent agency, look them up. If they're not in that database, I wouldn't work with them because they're already lying to you at the outset. So as much investigation as you can do on your own and talking to other people in your space who may have experience working with that brand or that agency, or on the other side, like, has anybody had an issue with this creator? Is their follower account real? Like, what else can we learn about them before you sign something is, is really important to do. I appreciate that so much. I think that's the real world advice that everyone is going to benefit from. Like, let's save each other from this nightmare experience and, you know, reach out to Robert when you have like, hopefully that once in a blue moon experience where you might need to litigate or you just need a little bit more advice, but like, let's save each other. Let's look out for each other and have each other's backs. You share a lot of really interesting stories on your social media. I love following what you're doing online. What was maybe the craziest case that you've covered that you think your audience was surprised to learn about? Yeah, it's a funny question. I, I was thinking about how to answer that one because it's hard for me to tell what surprises my audience. So I asked the question to my girlfriend yesterday and she was like, oh, the Bumble one easily. And I was like, oh yeah, people did engage with that one a lot. So there's a class action lawsuit against Bumble where they agreed to pay $6 million to settle it. And the allegation was that Bumble discriminated against straight men because if a man registers for Bumble and they set their preference to interested in women, only women can send the first message. And California has a law called the UNRWA Civil Rights Act that prevents businesses from arbitrarily dis discriminating against people on the basis of a class like age or gender. So the allegation was women get this benefit that men don't get 
or that men who identify a certain way don't get, and that's gender discrimination. And the case got far enough along through the courts, Bumble tried to dismiss it, they lost the motion to dismiss. And then because that law allows for, you can get $4,000 for a violation of it, 4,000 is not that much, but when you multiply that by every man in California who's signed up for Bumble since 2016, who identifies that way, the, the number is, unbelievably large. So Bumble thought it was worth it to pay $6 million to resolve that. It was the kind of like really discrimination against straight guys is the case here. But yeah, people seemed uh, surprised and intrigued by that one. I'm intrigued by that. That's like a pretty wild story. I had no idea about that one. I must have missed it. So wow, $6 million. Holy shit. So I think it's incredible how you have mastered your social media so well, your personal brand, and just like marketing in general, your your own business. How did you get to that point? What tips can you give to our audience? Like basically, how did you master this and how are you doing it so well? It's something I think about a lot. And I think it's a combination of luck and just being consistent. When I started making posts consistently on my page, a friend of mine showed me this accountant's page. There's a guy named Tyler McBroom. He's got close to a million followers now. When I saw him for the first time, he had like 100,000. And he just did quick one-minute tax tips that come up for small business owners. And my friend said, you should do that for legal stuff that comes up. And I thought, that's a good idea. I'll try that. I'll try to just copy basically what this guy is doing in terms of his style. And at first I was trying to do a video every day. That's not really sustainable for more than a, a few months. So I tried to switch it up with static image posts about new cases that people might find interesting in addition to sort of general legal tips and stuff like that. And it was, it was a combination of posting consistently and then through seemingly random connections, I would meet at networking events like conferences or speaking engagements. I'd meet somebody and exchange information with them. And some of those people are very influential people in business with large followings. And if you can get a handful of reshares without asking for them from very large accounts, you can get sort of snowball effect in terms of your exposure where other influential people that they know will follow you and, and they'll reshare it. And so that sort of luck factor of having a few big accounts amplify what I was putting out plus just being consistent about getting content out has has made it pretty successful for a page that talks about the law. <laughs> I'm still kind of surprised that people will stop scrolling to read some of this stuff, but of course appreciate it very much. But yeah, I think consistency, sort of learning what my audience likes and doesn't like over time, trial and error, and then a little sprinkling of luck. Do you enjoy that side of your business? Do you do that because you feel like you should, or do you feel like you're exercising like a fun, creative side of yourself? Mostly I really enjoy it. Like I like writing. I like to think that I'm a good communicator. Hopefully, hopefully I've done okay on this podcast. I think that when I have the time to prepare a video and write something that I can be happy with what I've done with it at the end. And that's a satisfying thing. And a lot of the content I put out is stuff that I'm paying attention to for my clients anyway. So I'll get an alert about a case that includes the word influencer, for example, and I'll read it to see if there's something I can take away from that that would help one of my current clients to know about. And a lot of times I think that is really interesting to me. I bet 
the internet or my followers would find it interesting too. And so I enjoy the process of taking that, putting it into a piece of content and then like anybody else, you know, seeing how it does and getting the notifications that somebody's reposted it or shared it or what have you. So it's addicting in a way and it is a part of what I get to do that I really enjoy and something that I wouldn't have the opportunity to do at a large firm like the one I was at because everything's got to go through five rounds of clearance from media teams. And I wouldn't have the ability to see something online and then instantly make a Twitter thread or an Instagram post about it. So I like that a lot. I'm grateful that I get to do that. Isn't it awesome to be able to be nimble just because you don't have as much red tape that you would working for a larger company? So I know that it can be intimidating to put yourself out there, but like the upside, like you're describing is just so good. I mean, you can meet so many more people. You have so many more opportunities. So to your point, man, like find a way to enjoy it and just like throw yourself in the deep end. So I have a feeling that our community is definitely want to going to want to follow you, check you out. So where can our community find you if they want to connect with you? Yeah, I'm most active on Instagram. It's at Robert Freund Law and same username on Twitter. I just started using Twitter more seriously maybe two months ago. And I like it because I can be even quicker on there. There's less editing involved and some things that maybe don't deserve a whole Instagram post can just sort of get thrown up on Twitter. But yeah, Instagram and Twitter at Robert Freund Law is, is where I'm most active. Perfect. Thank you so much. And we will link all of that in the show notes below. I am so appreciative that you can come on today. It's been such a pleasure, like learning, picking your brain, learning from you. So I have a feeling that a lot of our members and community will reach out, follow you, do all the things. So thank you so much for coming on today and we will see you guys next time. If you enjoyed this episode, we got to have you back. Check out our website for more ways to get involved, including all the information you need about joining our collective. You can check out all the information at IamWim.com. Leave us a review, a rating, but the most important thing that we can ask you to do is to share this podcast. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week. Tune in next week.